Hello and welcome to the Chorus in the Chaos podcast. My name is Jack, and I am coming to you tonight with a special bonus episode slash bonus mini-series on the doctrine and practice, maybe a defense of, if you will, infant baptism. This will be a four-part little mini-series I'm going to do that's really going to serve as a little bit of an intermission for us as season two. Uh, If you've been listening, we are right in the middle of season two, which we've, uh, on a theme of episodes built around common struggles of the Christian life. And we've got some really good, we've done, you know, a lot back there. You can go back and listen to those. We've got some great stuff coming, but we're going to take a couple weeks off and uh, I'm going to, you know, do a little mini series here. So we have some content coming out. Hopefully this will be beneficial and edifying to you. Um, If you haven't, please subscribe, like, comment, you know, all the stuff you're supposed to do with uh, podcasts on YouTube, especially on YouTube. It really does help. If you go comment, like any, any of that on YouTube, on any, any of the videos really doesn't matter. It really helps our algorithm helps uh, other people find us. So uh, question, why ask myself a question here? Why am I going to do a little mini series on infant baptism? Well, number one, we want to keep content coming. Like we don't want to have a complete lull uh, in episodes. So uh, we, we thought, or I thought this would be useful, maybe. Um, that That's part one. Part two, uh, I'm doing it because there's just a lot. I see a lot of misunderstanding on the doctrine of infant baptism, a lot of it. Uh, my own experience speaks to that. You know, prior to believing this and really understanding it, I objected it, uh, objected to it, and I didn't really understand why. Right, I see a lot of uh, misconceptions and just falsehoods on our Facebook page. You know, whenever the topic of baptism comes up, specifically infant baptism, you see people object to it for all kinds of reasons. Uh, most of the time, without really an understanding of why someone actually does believe it. So that that's that's maybe number two. I want to put to bed some common misconceptions of infant reasons people uh, object to. Uh, infant baptism. You know, things like the one that always gets me is, oh, well, infant baptism is just leftover Roman nonsense. That's not the case. I can assure you I do not believe and endorse infant baptism because I've ever read anything that Rome ever writ, writ on it, uh, wrote on it, excuse me. Uh, I, I can assure you John Calvin did not believe in infant baptism because just because Roman Catholicism did it. And so many Presbyterians uh, and, and the like, a- Anglicans and so on, other denominations, they don't do this because we believe uh, Rome did it, so we should just keep doing it. Or we haven't reformed enough. No, we do it because we see the practice and importance of it in Scripture, and that's that. That's what's important. Now, having said that, I'm under no delusions that I'm going to change anyone's mind. Um, it's just the way the way it goes. Uh, I don't expect to do that. I I know that there are a lot of people out there who are well read, well researched, and maybe you reject infant baptism because you've understood both sides and you've come to believe, well, I, I really only see believers baptism in scripture. That's great. I am under no delusion that I'm going to change your mind. I'm not really even going to try. Like that's not my objective here. My main objective really is to, to for, for this podcast to get to people who really just don't understand what it is, why we do infant baptism, where we find it in the Bible, and just provide from general kind of understanding to that in a summary level. Again, my, my goal here is not to provide uh, exhaustive histories, comprehensive scriptural explanations, uh, or even really detailed summaries for both sides of the debate, right? There, there's This topic has been written and discussed for centuries. There's a myriad of books out there that you can go get um, that, that'll really break it down much better than I. For, for, for the intents and purposes of this podcast, I'm writing to just kind of the general evangelical audience or speaking to the general evangelical audience, I should say. And I'm not, I'm kind of doing it in summary form. Right, I'm not not trying to uh, uh, 
to, to have the the final word, if you will, like or or, or have some exo- ex- exhaustive, comprehensive uh, study. That's not what I'm doing. This is more of an introduction uh, kind of overview of the topic in general. Uh, on that, there's going to be four episodes, and I'm going to jump into this really quick here. So please bear with me. Just one little thing, final thing by introduction. There will be four episodes. This is the first of four. In this episode, I am going to look at that question a little more deeper and why so many evangelicals uh, at least propose a question, a solution to this or an answer, right? But why so many evangelicals misunderstand infant baptism? Episode two, I'm going to compare and contrast the two primary uh, structures of hermeneutics or the main hermeneutical approaches that people take to the Bible. On one side, there will be the covenantal structure. And on the right side or the other side, there would be the dispensational uh, approach hermeneutic to, to scripture. Uh, within each of these classes, these two classes, there's a lot of variation. So again, I can't, there's no way I could cover all of those. So know that, but I am going to compare and contrast the two and explain why and where we get the covenantal structure, which is really the understructure, if you will, for a case for infant baptism. Uh, in episode three, I will go specifically to the topic, how we get infant baptism in the Bible. And then in episode four, I will continue to build what I'll call support verses of the two-tier covenantal structure, which is the uh, understructure for infant baptism. Um, one final note for Reformed Baptist. I know we have several that listen to this. Um, most of you know what you believe and you know what you believe really well, and that's great. Uh, again, I'm not under no delusion that I'm going to change your mind. What I do hope and ask it is you just listen with an open mind um, and just maybe you'll learn a little bit more about why we do it. may not agree with it, and that's okay. But for someone who does practice infant baptism, just listen and and learn a little bit if you have, if you can, right? Uh, on the Covenantal Baptist, the Reformed Covenantal Baptist, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time addressing that. So know that. Uh, I'll touch on a little bit in episode two, and then in episode four, I'll spend the most time as I dissect a couple verses uh, that really touch on where I think we can see some differences between a covenantal Baptist and a covenantal Presbyterian understanding of Scripture and why I fall on the covenantal uh, Presbyterian side. So with that, let's look at the question. So why is it that so many evangelicals really don't understand infant baptism? Uh, I, I think, and I'll propose that I think much of the broad evangelicals misunderstanding here doesn't stem from Roman Catholicism, Anabaptist influence, uh, but instead I'll say it's fallout from the Second Great Awakening, uh, riding the coattails of that Western-focused manifest destiny. Destiny, uh, the Second Great Awakening yielded an incredible, just an incredible amount of church plants uh, throughout the Western half of the United States, and so rapid was that haste of expansion of people moving out west that much of the oversight and doctrine and polity was sacrificed. I mean, practically speaking, if you think about it, the hierarchical church government model uh, was was ill-effective, right? It proved ill-effective at upholding doctrinal standards, and they couldn't keep up. And, and I think the main reason, there are a lot of reasons, but maybe the main reason was just a general lack of uh, communication. We have the benefit today of the internet, email, uh, podcast, uh, all kinds of ways. There's, there's a lot of ways we can communicate over long distances instantaneously. Back then, they didn't have that. And so where you had you know a generation, one generation, largely by necessity, that kind of operated and settled for a church life that was largely ungoverned by a polity, by an upper body, meaning you had a local church and there were people looking at what that local church does. There were people who were holding the pastor accountable to certain doctrinal standards. 
you know, by kind of by necessity, people went, went rogue. Like they didn't have that. They moved out there and they just kind of learned to operate that way. So where you had one generation that did that by necessity, <clears throat> I would say the next generation was pretty much conditioned, right? Now you had a, a whole group of uh, people coming up in the next generation that didn't really experience. They didn't have an entire life or background rooted in confessional doctrinal standards that have been around for hundreds of years, kind of well-researched confessional standards, right? And in the absence of these denominational guides, what we began to see was an increase in solo scriptura. Not sola, but solo, right? And there's a significant distinction here between solo and sola. The later being sola uh, acknowledges the reality of spiritual authorities outside of the Bible. That, you know, the church is a spiritual authority, for example. It acknowledges that this is a spiritual authority. However, all spiritual authorities, regardless of what they are, are in full submission to Holy Scripture. And this was an, an ideal uh, endorsed by the Reformers. Scripture is the supreme uh, rule for, for faith, right? It is the top. There are other things that, 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 that can influence it and help us understand our faith, but everything must fall in submission to Scripture. That is sola scriptura. The former, being solo, uh, that ideal operates such that there are only the Bible and personal interpretation. Just me and my Bible. You know, you open it up, you read it. This is what it means, and you go. And, you know, if you attend a Baptistic Bible church in the Midwestern part of the United States today, uh, you know, there's a fair chance that at some point, if not today, that at some point it operates or operated with a sola scriptura mindset. Not all of them, but there's a chance, right? I, you see that. Many of these churches that operate this way find their theological roots uh, not in the Reformation, although they were maybe largely influenced by it, but they find a lot of their theological and hermeneutical roots, I should say, in the Second Great Awakening, in this kind of solo scripture, or maybe it's like a blend, right? Like a sola, sola, you know, it's just not as, not as rigorous as, as it was uh, for many other denominations that grew up with church polity and generations prior. And because of this, uh, you know, you, when you have the solo scriptura mindset, you, you really open the door for a lot of things to to happen. Uh, it, it was out of the Second Great Awakening that we saw, you know, tent revivalism, emotionalism, Adventism, Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witness, the Restoration Movement. There was a whole lot of stuff that came out of it. And despite all these faults and all these bad things that happened in the Second Great Awakening, I, I really do, I still remain pretty sympathetic to it. And it's a movement. It was a pretty incredible time. Um, you know, there were many pastors who labored for the gospel and glory of God. And there are many evangelicals, myself included, that owe so much to these men that labored before us, uh, that were just passionate about evangelism and passionate about sharing the gospel, right? And uh, But like a lot of movements, it was imperfect. And we see that. Uh, without the aid of mature uh, ecclesiastical oversight, a lot of chat churches you know, lacked identity and lost doctrine. And I'll say that most importantly, regarding our primary topic of infant baptism, many of these churches forgot the value and substance of covenantal theology and began to replace it and just kind of generally think of the Bible more in a dispensational approach. Again, in the next episode, I'll really compare and contrast what that means. So don't if it doesn't mean anything, if those words are kind of new to you, that's okay. Just tune in for next episode and I'll compare covenantal versus dispensational. Uh, but, but it's because of that that we saw all these other things happen, right? Uh, the other thing that was happening kind of at the same time the Second Great Awakening was was uh, roaring on is we, we saw, coupled with this, a rise uh, in the evolution of American individualism. 
So, you know, you had the Revolutionary War, which really brought out the individual. You have the Manifest Destiny, which brings out the individual uh, or highlights the individual, I should say. And you have all these all these people, men and women uh, moving westward, looking for work, young families looking for a fresh start. And there was, again, an entire generation built on this paradigm of being self-made. I'm going to go make a life for myself out in California or wherever it was. Right. And this individual first cultural mindset permeates through our world today. It really does. Uh, sometimes kind of a common name that we that we hear today is the American dream. This idea that anyone can make anything of themselves, you, you know, that that stems really out of this. And I'm not saying it's bad per se. I think as you know, this 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 ideal has really been really good for industrialism and the economy. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to say it's really good, but it's imperfect. We live in a fallen world. And I think that this American dream, individual first cultural mindset has really proven to be a hindrance to churches and community mindedness. Um, Unlike our small, relatively speaking, independent American family units, the Jewish family, if we're going to compare and contrast, was really expansive and interdependent. Uh, Today, you know, where symbiotic living, meaning you've got someone who just stays at home and lives with the family, right, as they get older, that could be viewed as a weakness in some context. It was commonplace for the Israelites. People lived together. Everyone counted on everyone else to survive. Um, So actually, let's go to Scripture really quick, and I'll give an example to contrast. Uh, And this is Luke 2, verses 41 through 45. And if you're familiar with the text, this is when Jesus was left behind by his parents in Jerusalem. So uh, Luke 2, 41 through 45. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple." So notice that Jesus's parents went an entire day, an entire day, 24 hours before becoming concerned that Jesus was missing. Uh, Just earlier this evening, I was talking with my daughter when she was, uh, she's 10 now, when uh, when she was four, um, she went missing for like 15 minutes. Uh, After about 15 minutes, we realized she wasn't around. We got terrified. We couldn't find her for an hour. In fact, we ended up calling the police because we couldn't find her. Turns out she wasn't missing per se, she was hiding. she just thought it would be fun to go hide in the little crawl space between the mattress and the headboard. Uh, and she was tiny, so somehow she fit down there. And, we, you know, we looked everywhere. Never in my mind did I think <laughs> to look in that spot. Um, so we missed her, and she thought it was fun. She stayed She stayed down there for like an hour. And we were panicked, right? We were completely panicked. Um, and it was like after 15 minutes, and the panic grew, obviously, over that time. We were concerned at 15 minutes and then, like, terrified as time went on. But the point is, Jesus's parents went an entire day before becoming concerned that Jesus was missing. They assumed him. They weren't worried about it. They assumed he was safe and being managed by their extended community because that's just the way life was. Everyone managed everyone else. Parents, it was a community covenantal mindset by which the children were taken care of. And I, I think because of that, it's safe to assume that Jesus, in that time that he was quote unquote missing, right, in that three days, he's probably fed. He was taken care of. I doubt he slept on the street. Um, he was with people who knew him, loved him, cared for him. And we see this when we look back in, in the Old Testament uh, and in the, in the New Testament. We see communities 
that are drawn together by culture, faith, and I'll add a covenantal sign. And, uh, and I'll kind of rhetorical question then, how different is that worldview of parenting and community when compared to the American evangelical church culture today? So why, why bring that up? Why compare Jesus <clears throat> uh, to, to our American culture today, right? Because I want the listener to consider and maybe think about that there are many evangelicals, maybe yourself, out there that are maybe unknowingly programmed and preconditioned to overlook some of the foundational pillars as to why one would practice paedo-baptism. And namely, what do I mean by that? I mean, namely, the importance of communal thinking, uh, federal and familiar headships, and having a covenantal hermeneutic, uh, hermeneutic approach to Scripture. Um, you know, it's taken, what, 200 years? Uh, that's about roughly how old America is, say 200 years, you know, whatever, for Americans to become staunchly individualistic. That's our identity. We're, we're big on the individual in America. And this, I, you know, it, it has to, right? Uh, this greatly influences how we read the Bible, how we raise our children, how we understand covenantal relationships. So many people, when they read the Bible uh, for the first time, they begin to look for themselves in the Bible. And, you know, I think that's a sin thing as opposed to trying to understand, oh, this is a book about God's salvation. I think it's a sin thing, right? But I also think there's, as Americans, maybe just maybe, right? Maybe we do that more than others because we're so individual first uh, mindset. And as dogmatic as our culture is about the individual, the supremacy of the individual, I'll contend that the Jewish and first century Christians would be 20 times as strict in the other direction. We had 200 years of generational programming to be the individualistic-minded culture that we are today. Jewish and first century Christians had 2,000 some odd years of generational programming. 2,000, right? They, this idea of community was so ingrained in who they are and how they read the New Testament letters and how they understood what Jesus said and what Paul said and what Peter said, so ingrained in what they are that these other paradigms, I would say were just completely foreign to them. Like they would have really even understand that. And, and to that point, myself included, everyone comes to the Bible with their own culture and worldview biases. It's impossible not to, it just happens, right? But we got to keep that in mind that the New Testament was written by Jewish thinkers for a first century audience. Uh, even G- Jesus, who spoke often in parables relevant to the immediate listener at the time, um, you know, he did this. There have been many times that I've missed nuances in his parables because I just I lack a general understanding of agricultural living. So thank goodness and praise the Lord for scholars, pastors, for their commentaries and teaching to help me you know, understand some of these things that I just missed because I don't understand agricultural living. Right. I didn't grow up in that. So in closing, I just will propose this. Um, it's entirely possible if not likely, that when we come to the topic of hermeneutics, covenants, their signs, and you know infant baptism, there were assumptions made by the part of the New Testament authors, authors on behalf of their first century audience, meaning when they wrote things, they understood that this person is just going to assume this to be true, right? That they didn't feel the need to re-explain or change things. Um, they just, it was what it was. They had 2,000 years of cultural programming. So, you know, unraveling this dispensational hermeneutic that's so ingrained in the evangelical American churches, I'll say is where we must begin if we want to build a scriptural case for infant baptism. So thanks so much for listening. This has been Jack with The Course and the Chaos. In my next uh, 
uh, episode of this little mini-series. Again, I'll begin building a scriptural foundation for covenantal theology and the practice of infant baptism and also comparing and contrasting a little bit with uh, dispensationalism. Thanks so much and have a great, great day.